See, I don't want to speak about certain things, but naturally, bro, I will just ask you so many questions that I don't want to get you in trouble. <laughs> bro, it should, it should be fine. Nah, let's just keep it. No, now I want to know the question. <laughs> I would to ask you what taking over looks like in practicality. Yeah, no, nah, I can answer that. Why would I get in trouble? Okay, cool. I'm not scared of no one, bro. Did she tell you the story, yeah? No. Of this. So basically, my wife bought me this book. And she went for my birthday. You didn't yeah. tell me that story. I didn't <laughs> Oh. My wife bought me this book. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just been in my house. Um, and I mean, I've, I've read parts of it. Hmm. Um, and I actually saw your name. And I was actually thinking in my head, I should ask Rashid to reach out to his brother. Ooh. And it was literally like the day before Rashid sent me this message. And I see my inbox, because I'm looking at it, I'm like, when I was reading on the Nabil Kitahi, I'm like, I look him up, one bleed this, one bleed that. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, we should invite the brother on the podcast. But we were really busy. Yeah. And a day later, I look on it, um, and I see a message from Rashid about private had Amanda. Yeah. I'm like, Rashid doesn't read this type of book. And he's like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, he's about private had Amanda. I'm joking, and then I sent him a picture of my book. Yeah. And then he's like, yeah, you were at school with your brother, like, small world. Yeah, well, um, did she ever explain to you why she bought it for you? Where she thought the commonalities? She thought the work that we do, Yeah. reading this would be interesting. Yeah. Especially for, like, some safe spaces that we build and stuff like that. Yeah. And then the other thing that I'm, this value you asked me what I would have spoken about. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about like your own personal stories of people mm-hmm. getting like Section 21. Um, oh, as in that? It's yeah. never happened. It never happened? Not to my knowledge. Okay. So so I can I can elaborate a little bit about yeah. about the blueprint. Yeah. So um, to give you a bit of context, I I grew up on the chocolate estate. Yeah. And I um, I don't really have any business in the yeah. in the built environment industry. Yeah. And um, I grew up with my formative years, my teenage years, um, next to a construction site in Wembley. So I'm seeing like, for a solid like eight, nine years, just bare construction. Um, and as these buildings start coming up in Wembley, um, slowly I, st- I, start to, I start to have a look at the area and I'm seeing a different type of people to the people that I grew up around. Um, and the space wasn't really as inviting. So um, a lot of what I was doing at the time um, was trying to trying to like heal ties between my neighbors in my community. And one of the, one of the ways I tried to do that was um, organizing a community event on the Chocolate Estate. I did it for a couple of years and one particular year we were struggling with like funding and so i was like well the developers next door who, who've been building for years m- must have money so like i literally just knocked on their door said listen you guys have money and we need some cash would you be able to donate some they said no i said all right cool but if you want come to my event just to show you what sort of people actually were here before you built so they came 
and and they were impressed and they went off. I then started an internship. I graduated in biomedical sciences, so completely unrelated to this. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. George the Poet was doing an internship. He advertised for it. I applied, alhamdulillah, I got in. Um, so I was working there for a couple months and as I was reaching the end of my internship, I, um, I got a random email from the developer next door. And they said, yo, like, we were really impressed with uh, the event that you invited us to. And like, part of what we want to do is try and uh, connect local communities to what we're building here. So I right, cool. I told George and George said, Nabil, like, none of the man them work in urban development, at least none in Northwest London who's connected to, to, to people. So with his blessing, it was like, go and take the job. And, and so I learned, I learned quite a lot about like the tricks of the trade and, and, and the power that a developer has, the power that a landowner has um, in Britain. Um, at the same time, I started seeing my neighbours down in South Kilburn and other estates across London um, kind of experienced this weird process where they were getting moved out and, and shifted out of London to like Milton Keynes and, and Brighton and, and like places where they weren't under the protection of like the unity that they had. The community. The community, yeah. do you know what I mean? So for instance, like there's a really big Somali community in Chalk Hill, like, and these families rely on each other. So like, they have like community financing where, where like everyone pays into a part and it's like yeah. community banking and, and like they all speak the same language and like you walk down Wembley High Road, some of these aunties run shops here, do you know what I mean? So it's a very well connected network of families, but they experience displacement Suddenly, they're not in Northwest London anymore. They're a couple thousand miles up north because the council rehouses them and they don't really have a choice. So it made me realize more and more the condition of, of my people um, and their housing situation and like the impeding sort of horrors of gentrification and sort of the, the target that's painted on our back. So knowing kind of what I knew from the industry and my experience, I felt like I had to share the knowledge and information on how to protect these communities. So I, I basically put it in a book. Nice. Um, it's quite short, quite brief, and you can't get it in Waterstones or Foils because none of the man them go to Waterstones. So you have to like get it direct. Um, and I even built a line around it. So there's a tele dedicated telephone number which like connects straight to my phone where like anyone who has any questions or um, wants a bit more clarification or even wants me to come to their block to like explain physically how privatization can run in their bits, um, they just shout me. I've been getting a couple of prank calls, but, um, <laughs> but that's that's the risk you carry when you put a number out of the internet. <laughs> um, you can make that your you can make that your um, like business number. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a business WhatsApp yeah. number. Um, sometimes I switch it off when I'm on holiday. 
No, that that's um, interesting. You so you obviously mentioned gentrification. Yeah. What does gentrification mean to you? What does it look like to you? Like that be like if you could if yeah, yeah. your own view on it. So so um, I do a lot of research and I read a lot of urban theory, geography, and um, gentrification first emerged in the late 1900s under uh, Ruth Gloss. She was a sociologist professor, um, and uh, it's been popularized today by a prof- Professor Loretta Leach. In, in short, to paraphrase, it's, it's the uh, displacement of people and replacement of sort of working class racialized people for middle class, mostly white English uh, sort of replacement tenants. So, so, so it's in the blurb, it's, it's kind of the regeneration of urban spaces at the expense of the existing residents. Obviously, we live in London. Yeah. We witness it and we see it. We see it every day. Um, I was working in Hackney for like four or five years. Yeah. Probably southwest London. Yeah. We see it big time. Yeah. But behind the scenes, what does it actually look like from a policy perspective? Why do people do it? I was, I was chatting with someone the other day and I was like, I wonder if one of the reasons they do it is so they have, so the council have more people giving council tax rather than in benefit. Is it's not black and white. Yeah. We need to kind of appreciate that there's um, a number of boroughs in London, each with their own financial um, systems and, and, and structures, each with their own pressures. What we can be sure of is uh, since we've had a Tory government, which was voted in in 2010, the amount of funds that goes from the treasury to local authorities has been slashed tremendously. So local authorities have much less resource. What they had during the 2010s um, was land. And within that land, they had a lot of social tenants. Now, some of these social tenants are going through real life issues, some of them requiring support. And to generalize, um, they were a drain on council resources. So the maintenance of these housing estates owned by councils costs money. Any sort of housing subsidies that's paid to, to these tenants costs money. Any youth programs, anything that, that contributes to the benefit of the community costs money. Now, councils already are in the red they're, they're experiencing sort of um, uh, very, very low cash flow. And they need to find a way to get your bins collected. They need to find a way to fill potholes on the street. So they also need to find a way to make money. So they sell land, in short. And they usually sell it to the highest bidder. So they look to the private sector to hit two birds and one stone it's the removal of a cost to the council in 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 housing estates and it's the gain of cash from the sale of land so it's a bit of a it's a it's a bit of a like precarious situation where the council's hands is almost forced and so the premise of privatization is clearly local authorities those who 
are charged to take care of us are failing to do so and are making decisions at the expense of the people they're meant to be taken care of. So I feel like we're a couple of generations in now. The man and are in a position where we can take care of ourselves and we no longer need to offset the responsibility of like our homes to people who essentially have their hands tied. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I understand that. Um, in terms of some of these thoughts, they're not actually my opinions. Of course. Um, I'm asking you if you properly understand. Of course, of course. Um, so like in terms of the new developments that you see, yeah. do you see them as a good thing? Is it necessary or like how do you see them potentially? You know how, like, an act of charity is uh, sort of, how do I say this properly? It's, it's like, it all comes down to the near. Do you know what I mean? The intention, yeah. The intention. The private sector, if you take away all of the nice words, the bottom line is a return on investment. The way the private sector works is it borrows money from somewhere with a promise of the same amount and some. So profit. Now, if you're using money and building a place with that money, you're going to design that place in a way where you can maximize the amount of money that's made there. So it's almost like you're building mini Vegases, places that are designed to take your money, places that are designed to maximize the amount of profit for the landowner. If London in its entirety gets built by the private sector and it becomes a city designed in a way that's meant to take your money, I don't think it would function well as a city as like a, a large human settlement there's more to life than business and i feel like we'd be going on a very rocky road yeah you can see it was like you said nhs and yeah. the whole schooling system and uh -huh. whatnot i think i was speaking to someone um this was years ago my situation might change now mm -hmm. And they were like, sometimes they can cost the NHS like £23 to pay for someone's breakfast. Uh, someone's got to make a profit. Someone's got to make a profit. If you remember the pandemic, contracts, public contracts, like taxpayer contracts were given out to private entities. Um, PPE, yeah. profit was made during a worldwide pandemic. Yeah, there were some contracts where they gave it to some friends of the Conservative Party. Yeah. Um, and then the PPE came back and some of it had to be thrown away. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was like 20 million or something like that. Um, I'm not sure about the, the numbers actually. Um, before I get into the book, yeah, it was nice like, to see, because you spoke about some of I think, the things that were in your mind, like mm. obviously working with this organization. Would you say that was your biggest motivator to write the book? 
or would you say there were certain like instances in your life experiences mm-hmm. um, that made you plant in the seed? Do you know what I've got to do something about this? Or was it more just your experience working um, with well, you know, your local area, I guess? I think my main, my main um, motivator was kind of seeing the repeated uh, issue of like choicelessness that the man in face like we we don't get a say in anything that happens in the city and we're the last to benefit from from anything and i i didn't know the solution um i I just stumbled into the development industry and in that experience i was exposed to like the power of a landowner and the protection that they're given by law as a result of owning land and the freedoms they have in like creating a piece of city within their own imagination. And I've seen time and time again, kind of decisions being made on behalf of the Mandem, usually not, not in their favor or to their benefit, but never kind of the devolution of, of, of that decision-making power given to them and the protections given to them, the premise or privatize a man name. The underlying thing is is protection. By law, we will be protected because as landowners, if we're not selling, no one can buy it. And again, no one can buy it if we're not for sale. And as landowners, only we would say whether we're we're for sale or not. Do you get? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of. I want to afford the option for my people to be protected. And then even more so, as landowners, cool, we're protected under the law. But we have some really creative people living in the ends, you know. Imagine a 15-year-old boy or girl growing up in, in a space where they know my mum, my auntie, my uncle owns this land they may be inspired to grow up to become an engineer, an architect, a lawyer, a solicitor, in order to help shape what their space looks like. So someone might grow up to be an architect and may actually have the opportunity to, to like change the local park that they live in. So that power to like transform the space they, lives in, um, they live in uh, come, comes with sort of privatization and, and owning the space. In terms of sad ownership, yeah. um, it's obviously there's an opinion on like the importance of land ownership or uh-huh. how bad it can be. Uh-huh. Just sake of clarity, what's your view on people um, like buying up houses yeah. just to put on rent? It's not my place to... Um, it's not my place to uh, like criticize people. I understand we live in a time where people are um, people may be coming out of an economically poor situation, and one of the ways that you can generate income is is through that. Yeah. The issue I see with um, let's not even speak about let's not speak about someone who might have one house rent, mm. but like. You got on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have what you want to post on 
join my course. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. had to spend like. All right. In in short, yeah. The commodification of shelter is a widespread issue. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you have to work to be sheltered, you might be building a society that excludes people. Yeah. Think of your single mums. Think of disabled people who who um may may not be able to work. People who who are retired, like com commodifying shelter and expecting rent every single month, has its like negative attributes as well as its positive. So so it's um it's a morally grey area. I think I, I think it's a yeah. case by case. Like some of my views on it. Um... I'm not speaking about Islamic law here, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Um, but even from my understanding of Islamic law, there can be some stuff around this because of an urgency of our time. Mm -hmm. And normally, state would like, as happened in Europe, where yeah, where um, when land itself has been like deprivatized, yeah, um, it's gone back into the public control. Yeah, um, I think it's an idea of um, people buying houses to put on rent. Yeah, um, yeah, like you said, it takes. It, it forces you to take up the rental price. You have spaces that shouldn't be like a one bedroom flat that have been made in two or three bedroom flats. Yep. And ultimately by people owning more houses, mm. it means someone else has less ability yeah. to own. And obviously without the interest system being how it is, you wouldn't have a banking system anyway without yeah. it. You wouldn't have a, um, like the whole, the whole way that mortgages are provided. Mm. Um, that wouldn't exist yeah. um, in the first place. No, that's that's interesting. But also, yeah. you know the industry calls flats that they build products. So if you've commodified homes, you're creating products. What's the mark of a good businessman? Someone who makes a lot of profit? Yeah. So traditionally, if you have a set of products and you want to maximize the amount of profit, you're going to charge the most for your product. So that means you're going to cater for a specific portion of the market that has a lot of disposable cash. Now, if you build a city with this audience in mind, the high income, high disposable cash audience, you've built a city that excludes a sea of people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If we continue to build London um, in that way, you know, the new developments, the big ones, the... London for beyond that, everything's being built. Do you know what I mean? All the 15 minute cities that we all know about that's cropping up. Yeah. That's built to provide products, maximize, return on investment you're excluding people my wish in 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 part of delivering this work is holding people kind of accountable to the homes that they purchase so like when you buy that's your home that's your shelter don't turn it into a product yeah do you know what i mean because part of a community is is the presence of people. Yeah, and even just like 
a big part of that what builds a community is so in the last I've I've been in London again traveling for a bit yeah maybe the last eight years mm-hmm. in the last eight years I've probably stayed in ten different places yeah so I've stayed in South London yeah to Angel to Edmonton mm-hmm. to Archway to Holloway Finsbury Park to Hamilton to Dawson back at Finsbury Park now wow. which means that I haven't had the chance to like even be a part of the mm. a community. Yeah. It's just been impossible. It's transient. Yeah. Mm. Like, because I'm not able to easily throw my own health. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even it's funny because the work that I do is to yeah. work with mosques. Like yeah. now we're at Masjid and in the Masjid mm. because it's your local area and we know the bubble from the Masjid. Mm. And honestly, like I always wish that I lived next to a local mosque, I could be involved with a local mosque. Yeah. But I just can't. Mm-hmm. Because right now, my local mosque is this mosque and mm. like, it's called like Master Yusuf. It's in like Amidington. Mm. But six months time, I'm going to be living next to there. Yeah. So it'll be a disservice for me to involve myself with the message and just remove myself. Yeah, yeah. It's really problematic. Mm. But before I just go into the into the book properly, yeah. One of the things you you refer to in the book, you speak about the difference between freehold and leasehold. Yeah. Now I just want to ask you a personal question. Sure. Because I think if I'm in this situation, there'll be millions of people in this situation. Yeah. So I'm fed up of like not having a community, yeah, or a tribe, or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. How would you advise someone like me to purchase? Mm-hmm. How would you advise someone like me to have a community within within um, the current climate that that we're, that we're in? And this is like a finance question. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, so, so I I firmly believe that human beings um, belong to, uh, we're tribal. We're very, very tribal. And we we may belong to more than one tribe. In my instance, I'm Arab, I'm Muslim. I'm also a Northwest man. Do you, do you know what I mean? 100%. This is a realization I had myself recently. Yeah. London is like a big part of my identity. 100%. Yeah. I, I think we'd be doing ourselves a disservice if we don't acknowledge that part of who we are because if you go to Egypt it's full of Muslims but they can tell you're not Egyptian do you know what I mean on top of that if you went to Egypt and you used for someone from London yeah regardless of their ethnicity you know you know they're from London you know yeah. do you know what I mean there's a certain way we get our hair cut there's a certain way we talk there's um we walk a certain way we walk and a tribe, in essence, is a group of people who have shared interests, a shared culture, a shared set of values, morals, and rules. So you know, when you get on the train, you don't speak to no one. Do you know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's an unspoken rule. Nowhere on TFL does it say, please don't speak to the people sitting next to you. We just know it because culturally, that's how it is. And like, again, Tribes are not a monotonous group of people. There's a whole different, like, there's a, it's a spectrum of people. So like, you've got some of the men that go to church, some of the men that go to mosque, you've got some of the men that are struggling with faith, but they still belong to the same tribe. And so I think recognizing this, this tribe in Britain and how powerful it is allows us to 
come together, unite in the interests of of everyone's um, preservation, happiness, and benefit. Because that, that's all. That's really what matters. Yeah. This Donia's fleeting, bro. So like, my main thing is happy life. Um, you leave something behind for your kids, and like, you live clean. It's as simple as that. And like. That's the knee, yeah. Or the process of trying. Or the process of trying, like striving to, striving to get there. So like, as long as we get those principles down and that's our bottom line, when we start shaping the city and we start designing stuff, it's gonna look a little bit different to the rest of London. Do you know what I mean? No, 100%. That takes me nicely onto the book. Fantastic. I wanna go through into glossary. Let's do it. Um, Because as I was reading it, um, there's some words in here that You've wrote the definition for me. Yeah. But I want to understand why you wrote the wrote of course. definition for. And I want to test you on the definition. Are you quizzing me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. How would you define the mandem, right? The mandem, so um, I think I think we'd be wrong not to acknowledge how influential like the black British culture has been. In, not just in Britain, but to all of us. Yeah. And like, how um, inviting they were to to all of the migrants that followed them and how it's influenced sort of our language, our style, our culture. Um, and it's twofold. London's one of the only places where you will hear like Wagwan Ma'ak, like different languages in, in a single sentence. So so like in this specific, in this specific context, the Mandem originates from Caribbean English it came after World War Two. It describes a group of people. Now, this group of people generally is is uh, attributed to the people who who live in the ends. In short, I wouldn't really call people who who live in Richmond and play polo or the Mandem. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so people know who they are. I think one of my brothers is in Richmond. So that was before we had my And so um, he might still be one of the right. <laughs> um, in terms of that takes us to the next question. Yeah. Actually, before we move, move on to that, yeah. um, the mandem um, is you're not referring just to. Not, mid, not just yeah. Len. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I got. Sisters too. Yeah, I got sisters. My sisters yeah. are part of the yeah, mandem. Yeah. My mum. Yeah. My mum, who's like Papa Auntie. Like, <laughs> she's one of the mandem. My. um. And the first sentence of the book, when you open it, clarifies who the mandem are and who the audience is. I think it's just semantics. Like I have so many friends of the opposite sex that I, I she's one of the mandem, do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's generally what I mean. You spoke about the ends? Yeah. How do you how do you define what what's the that? The ends is 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 primarily um, public sector owned social housing estates, the the places where we come from, the places where you'll find like a lot of migrants, a lot of working class, yeah. place where all the majority of this country's culture comes comes from. Yeah, it's mad. It's mad. It's bro. mad. Like you like buy that trap star and um, like there are there are child, middle class kids that will come down from the countryside. To run through the streets of London for a t-shirt coming out of Church Road. 
Do you understand how mad that is? Do you know, like how much, how much influence and power you have just by virtue of, of having character. All of our athletes come from the ends. Your Anthony Joshua's, your Raheem Sterling's, like all these people came from down the road. Yeah. Even our politicians, people like David Lammy, whether people agree with his politics or not, like he's from the ends. And like every time he speaks, the papers point his name. Tell him. <laughs> he's an admin. David Lammy's an admin, no? Is he? I think David Lammy, do you want to check me out? Um, but let's talk, let's have rented it. Again, I, yeah. I, I, I don't, yeah. I don't really play with politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My point is, yeah. is, is people, is people who, um, have influence. Cool. Um, in going back to the mandem. Yeah. If someone came to this country at the age of like 30 years old. Yeah. From my experience, they're like automatically, like if they're living in London and they come even at the age of 30. Mm. And they had get a job somewhere or like not yeah. if they don't but if, if they're known in the area, they also like become the mandem straight away. Yes. It's um like everyone knows people work at the shops and yeah, yeah. things like that. When it comes to the culture we build amongst the mandem oh. um or the brothers. Yeah. Um and the sisters. Um, yeah. Well, just naturally. Yeah. If we're not building capsules of what are we building from a cultural perspective? So so I I think we need to take a step back and have a look at the world at the moment, yeah. There is no more West. It's the world. Everyone subscribes to the United Nations, which was born in the West. Every country borrows money from the IMF, which has roots all the way back to the West. Our nation states and borders are a result of the West and their pen. So we have to kind of accept the reality that the whole world now um, subscribes to a global capitalism model. There are markets in the East, there's markets in the West. Um, there's emerging markets in Africa. Um, the Commonwealth has kind of dragged ex-colonies into, into a capitalist system and has provided ways for sort of Westerners to come and invest and get a return on. So, so, so we're, we're dealing with a global structure of capitalism. It's very unlikely for us to turn around one day and say, yo, I don't want to be a part of this. When everything, you can't travel from one country to another without a passport, which in, it, in itself is a document that upholds um, certain values and, and, and certain systems that um, uh, contributes to um, sort of barriers to access because of how much money someone is is um earning so for instance um you can't come to britain you can't get a visa if you're not rich and so the only visitors we get here are people who are willing to give their cash to the country so our our, our very systems of even travel across the world is built under this premise of capitalism cool this is a temporary solution 
because we live in a system of capitalism, the laws in this country protects the most valuable person in Britain, and that is the landowner. And the king is the king is the biggest. He's not. He's not. I mean, he once was. So oh, with, with, with the inheritance of the queen of the queen's wealth, would he not? I'll tell you a little story. Quick history lesson. Yeah. In the year one thousand something, um, William the Conqueror asked his people to go out into this island called Britain, and he's French. He was French. <laughs> you weren't even British. <laughs> um, but then, like, it was the Saxons there, and there, there's a history of like being conquered and and like. Um, there were uh, Viking kings and there were Norman kings and Saxon kings and whatnot. Anyway, William the Conqueror um, recorded for the first time um, kind of Britain and how much of the realm was under his ownership, the crown's ownership. And um, that was when like the concept of land ownership started to, to emerge in this specific island. Um, Fast forward a couple of years, um, the 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 lords of England um, started to uh, enclose certain areas of the sea. Now, now if you, if you fly over Britain, you'll see there are like parcels of land sectioned off with like stones, piles of stones um, in the countryside. Though they were enclosures, Britain once upon a time was called a commons, so like. Land was owned by God. People had temporary rights over certain areas that they occupied, and then they move on. Land ownership wasn't really a thing. Um, the king came and he said, "Oh, this is mine." The lords came and they said, "Well, okay, I want this, and I want this, and I want this," and the lords would fight the commoners. Now, this very concept went on to develop and modern politics today has the house of lords and the house of commons and the laws of this country is built around the lords the commoners the protections of a landowner who's trespassing what's allowed to happen on a particular land um what's public what's private so the most valued landowner is Sorry, the most valued individual in Britain is the landowner. You become a landowner, you become a lord. You shape laws. You have a presence in parliament. You get to change the country. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so this is ultimately what it's trying to do. It protects people and the spaces they live in. And what you do within these spaces is to the community's discretion. Do you get what I mean? So like, if you, if you want to have a different way of life, it can exist within this bubble that's protected by this country's law. Rather than trying to tear down this country's institution, which arguably isn't, isn't um, realistic, it's not the best solution, and it, it, it changes people in the process. Whereas this is a surefire way. Um, to harness that power and to change things in 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 the way that benefits the man the most. The next thing that I was going to ask you and speak about, um, and we go back to the book. Mm -hmm. A lot of a lot of the man 
um, which is quite common now. Um, for example, like Rashid Brothers in, in Ghana. Yeah. Like, if I want to go back to Bangladesh, I can do that. If you want to go back to Iraq, you can do that. What's your view on like investing where we where we came from? Like, what's your views on someone do you think? Uh, I think it's a responsibility. Buying the ends isn't the only solution. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Part of what we want to see is the the redistribution of wealth from the global north to the global south. Yeah. So there's a concept that I'm working on at the moment called um, sister cities. For example, a real life sister city is London and New York. It's a it's an actual agreement between the two cities where there's exclusive sort of trade preferences, tax breaks, um, uh, school exchange programs. They celebrate each other's culture. Like, like there's there's a lot to a sister city relationship. Now, um, Stonebridge was to privatize and it becomes its own city in its own right. Who's to say that it can't produce its own sister city relationships? So like, if there's a large um, uh, Caribbean um, population in Stonebridge that has ties in Kingston, it can form a sister city relationship that way. It's interesting when you speak about it. Um, you know, a spot project, a spot project. I've heard of them. You know, Muslim Bilal. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. From Resold. I don't know how involved they are in Abu Bakr. Yeah. Um, Roadside to Islam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, initially. Well, I have a lot of respect for them. Yeah, so as you said that, it actually reminded me of their project. Yeah. They were from Brixton. Yeah. Um, and they were this amazing project in, in Gambia. Yeah. In Gambia. But honestly, like, the way they fit, fit it up, it's like an extension of the Mandan. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, because that's, that's who the man them are. Yeah. You, I think these relationships are really important for us to build because we're a unique population of people. Technically, if I go to Iraq, they can tell man's not Iraqi. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. When I'm here, they can tell I'm not English. I'm something else. The man them all that's a shared experience amongst everyone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's a responsibility for us to remember where we come from and to build connections. That's the bare minimum. So if I can tie two cities together, my home here and my home there, then I feel like we'd be fulfilling part of our purpose. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. Rewind quickly, his historically. Why is there so much money in the global north and not in the global south? Because of uh, sort of a history of extraction, of, of, of theft. Yeah, of course. Um, you wouldn't have a TF, the whole TFL system. If you wouldn't have the TFL system. You wouldn't have sugar. You wouldn't have cotton. You wouldn't have tea. All this stuff grows in Britain. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, I, th I think I read somewhere that there's, there's trillions owed to India it's trillions owned to the Caribbean, like, like so it, it, it could be seen as a form of redistribution, redistribution where we could facilitate economic flow from where we're at in the global north to cities in the global south. So we're already starting that with the spot project. Do you get what I mean? 
all we would be doing with privatizing the Manem is having actual pieces of the city where we can house this activity yeah. and anchor it to to the capital. Do you I, know what I mean? I guess a counter argument to that. Um, I don't think it's one or the other. Yeah. But at the same time, if we look to sell here, yeah, we have to invest here as well, which is what this. Well, the, what the book's about. It, I, the only reason I'm saying that is I don't want people to understand that by earlier we had a podcast with Iqbal Asim, who yeah. the founder of the National Zakat Foundation, and we yeah. had a really good conversation there yeah. about just the importance of like using our Zakat yeah. um, in here because there's so many people struggling here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and not just even struggling, there's so many causes that we need to True. get behind here. Um, but I know definitely um, we run through like some of the, a lot of the glossary already because we spoke about um, gentrification earlier. Yeah. What did you, when you wrote the book, mm. um, what what was your aim for it? Like, what, what was your objective? What did you want out of this book? So I would, I would describe the book as being split in three sections. The first couple chapters is explaining why. Why is this guy waffling and talking about the need to own the spaces we live in. And I describe sort of the political history. I describe our condition in this country. Um, and I kind of allude to um, some of the inherent value that we create just by virtue of being who we are in the spaces that we occupy. The second part is literally a blueprint. It's what I've learned in my time in the industry it's a step-by-step -step process using, like, referencing very plain English, like, the legislation and the laws required, the people you need to bring on, and and um, the sort of from beginning to end process of, of owning the estate that you live in. And the final part, the third part, is um, a section that, describes the consequences of doing so. So if you do buy the ends, what's within your control? What can you do? What sort of responsibilities do you have? Uh, and then the final chapter is reminding people this isn't a tomorrow solution. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's going to take years. It's going to take a number of years for us to bring the man in together, to even get used to the idea of land ownership to even get used to the idea of uniting, to make people who have been convinced that they're powerless and they hold no place in this country to actually um, have a vested interest in the spaces that they live in. Bro, we got a complex, very complex history with the ends. Like, I love my block so much, but I've lost a lot of people to it as well. So, there's there's certain conversations that we got to have with our peers about our condition and how we can make it better. We got to have conversations of like our lifestyle, where our money is going, how we can how we can um, kind of have a north star, a shared mission, with with the intention of bettering our condition. You have the most cat. Can you hear the most? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, man. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess it goes back to what you're saying. Like, yeah. the, the laws for the landowner. Yeah. Um, if we want to have a, have some of our own values and our own way of living, we at least need to like have own our own land. 
Um, and I think, like, you know, right now, there's not a more important time to maybe read something like that. Oh. So many of us are just fed up of, like, getting bumped rent. Yeah. Um, or, like, having to move every six months to a year. Just check the cat. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how it's fine. There's beasts. Yeah. <laughs> just <peeking> the lips. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, and the message on the cat. Uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I saw it downstairs. I think especially now, mm. um, at a time where um, people just fed up of um, like paying like extortionate price for it, or having like no say or no control or no power over like mm. how much rent should be, mm. the inability to actually budget and have a life, and um, the idea. Even in my case, I think there's a lot of people like that <clears throat> that you have a community and mm. you don't have to worry about moving every year or six months or two years. Yeah. What would your advice be, right? Uh, we come to the conclusion. Yeah. Um, to a parent, let's say your parents got like, I don't know, like three children, they're living in a two bedroom house. Mm-hmm. They obviously expect that they may expect their children to all have children and they can't carry on living there. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's say the children are all teenagers, like 14 to 18. Um, what would be your advice to parents? Mm-hmm in the best way of supporting their children? Would it be through one they already have or um, like buying and stuff like that? So that's the tricky one. That's what if the, the bare minimum all right, it's not my place to advise how people yeah, should, should um, yeah. like deal with their lives. Um, but I think one of the most beautiful gifts you could leave for your children is um, the guarantee of shelter, put simply. In whichever, in whichever form that, that may come, that's like completely up to the parents. But I think ensuring that uh, your children have a roof over their head um, gives them one less stressful thing to worry about in this in this mad dunya that we live in. Um, for me, right, um, a big part of my work, yeah, um, it would be my belief in Allah, right? Yeah. I hope and mm-hmm. the battle for that to be right? one drives mm-hmm. drive off. Mm-hmm. Being a Muslim, being an Iraqi, um, what role did that have for you in, in the book? Um, the principles, its very existence is based on the values that I was raised with. Unity, sort of recognizing the differences in people, shared financing, um, patience in the book. The final part says, like the final chapter says, like you will die. This is not for you. Selflessness is characteristic I would attribute to to Islam. Like we're Muslims, we 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 surrender ourselves to Allah. To Allah. And Ali. even the Sunnah of Allah right, is the, mm. um, how we treat other people and how Allah treats us. You know? There you go. Um, so so to. I think fundamentally to think as a collective, to think for your tribe 
to think for your neighbors and for your people is an Islamic uh, characteristic. It's an Islamic behavior. So that's kind of what underpins all of this. So I would say it's, it's, it's the very essence of it. Yeah. Um, no, I really um, enjoyed the conversation so far. Mm. I think right now we, we obviously have a cost of living crisis. Yeah. It's hard. It really is hard for people, you know. Mm. Um, I don't mean this in a way to look down or that it's necessarily even purely a bad thing. Mm. But mm. On an individual level, mm. I'm not saying it's, it's a bad thing. Yeah. On a community level, I think it's a bad thing because of how we've got there. Yeah. But like, um, I think when people are going, like, majority of people that are now, not majority, a lot, there are a lot more people that go to food banks that have jobs. Yeah. I speak to people that parents that, subhanAllah, like, some of them would, like, there's people that I've spoken to just in the last couple of days that mm. they're not even being able to eat enough food so they can have food for their children. Mm. How do you think, what's our role? Um, we work with mosques. We work with, we train mosques on mm -hmm. how to, like, um, create a safe space or have a hub for teenagers. Yeah. What do you think the role of like community space, whether it's a mosque, whether it's a business, mm -hmm. um, a small business, um, someone the leader, someone uh, in in the time that we're in now. Yeah. What role do you think like community centers like mosques and um, space are that help? Okay. I. Can centers like the one we're in today yeah like yeah they're a lifeline for people um we are definitely in a crisis i think some some people would want to interrogate why we have the poverty um that we have today and let's not pretend like poverty never has existed once upon a time um in a land very far away. Like, there may have been two farmers. One had a good summer. One experienced a natural drought. We have systems in place to, like, zakat that equalizes and provides um, op opportunity for balance. What we're living in today is uh, a man-made system of poverty. So the owners of Islamic spaces like this is to ensure that zakat um, tries its best to equalize against the sort of scenario we're in at the moment. It's not just poverty in, uh, in finance. Sometimes it's loneliness. It's poverty in interaction. Yeah. Sometimes it's, you know, the lack of good role models. Um, you can go quite abstract with this. But um, we live in a time now where there are no youth spaces. There is no community center anymore. Like when I was younger, there was a time when there was table tennis. Do you know what I mean? Like there were youth clubs, they don't exist anymore. So the onus has fallen uh, squarely into, into the remit of like faith spaces. We have financial structures like Zakat, um, that we hope um, can can equalize, but also it's the responsibility of us all as people 
to um, stand up to injustices. So if we can see an injustice, especially in way of like... Uh, the, the Prophet said, um, we have to help the oppressor and the oppressed. So, that, so the Sahaba asked, okay, we know how to help the oppressed. Yeah. But how do you help the oppressor? Yeah. And the Prophet said, you stop it. You stop it. Yeah. Um, or you stop him from oppressing. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's mm -hmm. And to stop someone comes in, in various different forms. It might just be a conversation. It could actually just be like a sit down. Like, yo, you know what you're doing is actually like meshing me up and my people here. We have to give people benefit of the doubt. I think we have to, we have to go through a process of like negotiation without an expectation to escalate. Um, Can you mind if I just add something here? Of course, of course. I also think sometimes when we make friends that are like higher up than ourselves. Yeah. Or we're in circles. We might have parents, even let's say someone from a middle class English family listening to this, and they may have, they might have parents that have different beliefs than they do. Mm -hmm. they do. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we can avoid like yeah. having the difficult conversations because we're scared. Yeah. But I think with love, mm -hmm. the most important conversations are actually with the people that we have relationships with. Hundred percent. I think it's something we really miss out on. Um, I think in community spaces you can actually have these type of discussions. Yeah, um, And maybe you have that stubborn uncle. That stubborn uncle doesn't want to listen to anyone, but if you're his nephew that, and you're the nephew that he loves, he might actually listen to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously with love, mm. right? And obviously with everything we do, I believe we do it with mm. love, mm. like sincerely with love. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes we belittle the impact we can just have with in these type of conversations. Allah. And you know you were speaking about something because when we speak about cost of living crisis, yeah. we, we, it's not just finance, right? Yeah. It's the implications because the whole system's based on finance. Yeah. But the implications of that. Cool. Um, and even just the way media is going, how fast it's evolving, people are struggling to keep up with it. Yeah. So before we speak about mosques, yeah. I would I would personally strongly advise mm -hmm. um, anyone that has a local mosque or a community center mm -hmm. to follow, offer your help. Yeah. Um, I think mosques, generally from my experience, mm. in the last year we've trained 20 mosques ourselves, mm. um, but they need people to be committed and involved. Um, and I really think that if you have time to give, whether it's a few hours a month, a few hours a week, mm. a few hours a day, give your time um, and then give your opinion and your thoughts. Because mosques need, the mosque also needs your opinion and your thought and your idea that you're from the community. Yeah. Uh, no, I think um, that was really... Um, no, just after the I hope that um, we can sit down again like this. Of course. You're my friend now. Yeah. So <laughs> You're my brother now. Um, we have hubs in Northwest London with you yeah. work with, um, from Housing to Wembley, mm. Kingsbury, um, your West Acton, where we are now. Mm. Um, but definitely be um, looking forward to working with you on some of these hubs as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, in terms of you put your number there, yeah, if it's available for people to contact you. The first port of call yeah. is www.privatisethemandem.com. Everything is on there. The number, the Instagram, the book, um, and yeah, it will be me on the other side. I don't really have a team. It's a one-man show. So. <laughs> mm -hmm.